Tells Tales, airing live on KCAW. I'm your host, Ellen Frankenstein. I'm excited to be here with a live audience at Harbor Mountain Brewery Company with a special host and co-organizer, Alyssa Russell and the Salty Spoke Bike Co-op. We're here on Klingonani, the ancestral homelands of the Klingit, homelands of the Klingit people, with respect and gratitude for this place and the people who have lived here and told stories since time immemorial. The theme tonight is dream cycles, tales of visions, imagination, and bicycles. We have six stories featuring long journeys, rabbits, mothers, and more. The Salty Spoke Bicycle Cooperative, a program of the Sitka Conservation Society, envisions a Sitka in which biking is safe, accessible, enjoyable, and an affordable, an affordable means of transportation, where ridership is diverse and widespread, and everyone who wants a bicycle has a functional one. We are so excited to host this event in partnership with Sitka Tells Tales, and hope to host more events like this to bring Sitka's bicycling community together. Thank you to Raven Radio for broadcasting this event and bringing it to even more members of our community. The tellers for this episode of Sicka Tells Tales are Kara Crane, Adam Haar, Brian McNitt, Katie Sill, Luke Bruckert, and Kelly Schwartz. We're excited to also have music by Zach Kirkpatrick. So appreciative of the tellers and everyone who has made this evening possible. And Kara has been a Sitka resident for two years now after moving from Oklahoma for an AmeriCorps position. She fell in love with the beauty and adventure in Sitka and explores hikes and kayaks all around to see as much of it as she can. She's also a bit of an artist who works in watercolor and ceramics. And we welcome our first teller, Kara Crane. Hi everyone. Um, so today I have a story for you about what happened that made me stop riding bicycles and why five years later I got back on again. I never really grew up riding bikes. My parents taught me how and then it just wasn't really part of growing up on a farm. But I knew the basics and was good enough at riding a bike that in my senior year of college I decided that I would take a bike from the farm and use it to commute to work. I used it a couple of times. It was rusty. It had a weird little wobble every now and then, uh, but it worked most of the time. One day I was biking home from a shift at work, ready to relax, and my college town had some weird biking rules. Some places you biked on the road, some places you biked on the sidewalk, some places it was just the Wild West. Figure it out. Uh, my street was a sidewalk biking street, but I had to turn off of a road biking street in order to get to it. So this day I was biking home and I made the turn off of the street and onto the sidewalk, which was quite narrow, maybe like three feet at the most. And as I'm in the middle of making the turn, I look up and I see one of those rentable motorized scooters that you may be familiar with taking over many metropolitan areas, including my college town. It had been sort of tossed haphazardly, halfway on the sidewalk, halfway on the grass. And my first thought was just kind of an eye roll of like, ugh, another one. 
but I think I can get past it. I think I can just bike past it. No big deal. There's enough room. So I navigate my wobbly, rusty little bike and start to go past a scooter and realize that I miscalculate when I feel the front wheel of my bike skid off of the very tall curb. I had some expletives in my head, which I cannot say aloud. <laughs> and I dropped my right foot down to try to catch myself, not realizing that I had also miscalculated how what I anticipate being the ground is actually six inches higher than the actual ground because of the curb. I put my foot down and it keeps going. And then I land on the side. I feel a pop and I hear a crunch and down I go. I hit the asphalt and my bike lands on top of me. And I just laid in the road <laughs> thinking about my choices and regretting everything. As I'm laying in the road, I watch two cars just drive right past me. <laughs> But I finally decide it, I have to get up. I have to get up. Everything seems fine. Uh, so I started to stand up. I put weight on my right ankle and I immediately went down again, screaming more expletives. I didn't know what had happened, but it wasn't good. But I also needed to get home. I'm about a block and a half away from my apartment. So I haul myself up on one foot. I grab onto the handlebars of my bike and I hop home to my apartment where I collapse in a puddle of tears and call my mother and ask her, what do I do? And she says, obviously you go to minor emergency. And I go, I don't have a car. And she goes, call a friend. And so I did. I called my dear friend who was celebrating her birthday dinner, who was kind enough to leave her own birthday dinner and come and pick up my sad, sorry self and drive me to minor emergency room. While I was there, I underwent a series of x-rays, and once they wrapped up, the doctor came in and he said, okay, I have good news and bad news. The good news is you didn't break any bones. All your bones are fine. The bad news is you broke everything else. <laughs> I tore every tendon, every muscle, every ligament in my right ankle, and ended up in a gel cast for six weeks and a brace for a year. I still have to wear the brace sometimes when things are feeling a little dodgy. So I stopped riding my bike. I didn't get back on the rusty, wobbly little bike that I had had my wreck on and just didn't get back on again for years. Until last May, it was Mother's Day and my friend threw a party called Goal Day. The premise of Goal Day is you cannot attend the party until you have set and completed a goal a personal goal. It can be big. Some people ran a marathon that day. It can be small. Someone read a chapter in the book that they had been avoiding. I don't know why, but I decided I wanted to ride a bike again. I didn't have a bike. My roommate offered me one. Uh, I was doing everything in my power to dodge actually getting on the bike. I had, you know, my hands on the handlebars and I would go, I need a helmet. And so I would drop the bike, run upstairs, get a helmet, get the helmet, put it on my head and go, whew, okay. Go back down to the bike, you know, put my leg over the bike and they go, I need gloves. Drop the bike, go back upstairs, get the gloves, come back down. This happened multiple times until my roommate who had come out to watch the scene said, just ride the stupid bike. And I said, okay, I'll ride the stupid bike. I'm terrified. I'm white knuckling the handlebars of this bike. I'm afraid to put my feet up on the pedals. So I just gently push myself off and glide down our driveway. 
with no feeling left in my hands from how tightly I'm holding the handlebars and my feet dangling to the sides of the bike, just an inch above the ground, just in case. I get to the end of the driveway and I think, that's good, that's enough, I've done it. And then I think, actually, no, I haven't. If I don't ride this bike in actuality, in reality, I will probably never ride a bike again. And so with the uh, shouted encouragement of my wonderful roommate, I put my feet on the pedals and pushed off, yelling in fear, of course. <laughs> uh, and I did it. I biked down. It was only a block, but I made it. The whole while, I was terrified. I was so terrified. But then I turned around the block and I started biking back, and I realized what I was also feeling was freedom and a sense of relief that I had done it. I'd actually gotten back on a bike again, and it really is kind of like riding a bike. It comes back to you. So the moral of the story here is not some pandering, like, it's not as scary as you think it is, because it is. It's terrifying getting back on something that has hurt you. The moral of the story is it is worth facing that fear and doing the scary thing because the sense of freedom and relief that you will feel outweighs all the fear that you had felt just moments before. Thanks. Who felt like they were on the bicycle with Kara? I had chills and I was grinning, so thank you. And I'm really glad you got back on the bike so you could tell the story. Let's give a hand to our next Sitka Tells Tales teller, Adam Hart. Adam is a dreamer and a dream scientist who studies dreams by helping other dreamers dream specific dreams. Say that 10 times fast. Hey, y'all. I'm Adam. Hi. And I want to share a story about a dream that has walked with me for many years now, some decades. So when I was young, I was small. I'm not that big now. But at seven years old, I was all head, no body. And I got mugged in a way that really stuck with me. Sitting on the top row of bleachers, watching soccer, holding my shining Pokemon cards, pulled off backwards. This feeling of suspension in the air, chest forward, legs forward, butt backwards, slam on the ground. I remember a knee on my chest. I remember the breath sucked out of me. And then I remember my mother scooping me up and whispering comfort in my ear. And I remember my Pokemon cards were gone. So that night, a nightmare started, and the nightmare continued. The same nightmare again and again. I'm in my bedroom, I'm standing, a light's outside the window. I get turned around, bent forward, and sucked backwards out into the night. I had this same nightmare, this same nightmare. And my mother didn't know what to do. How do you protect your child when they're heading into another world? How do you whisper protection all the way into a dream? And so my mother had this idea, which is she would let me slip towards sleep. And right when my breath would move from my stomach to my chest, when I would be slipping out of consciousness, she would whisper rabbits to me. Rabbits in my ear. And it worked. I would wake up in my room, and instead of a light outside in the night, 
I would see a glowing rabbit by my bed, and no one would come. No wind, no breath, no night. And I forgot the nightmare, and I forgot the rabbits. And 20 years later, I was in graduate school, where I went to study sleep and to study dreams. And I was really excited about this challenge. I was thinking, what if we could make somebody dream of something specific, anything, and then we could see if it would make them more creative about that thing when they woke up in the morning. And there's this list in the brain sciences, which is called the Affective Words Library. There are 10,000 words to choose from when you're designing an experiment. And I don't know why, but I chose the word rabbit. And I watched this subject fall asleep, fall asleep, fall asleep, and over the speaker, I played a word, I played rabbit. And she woke up, and she said, that was amazing. I was on a sea, I was on macaroni, I was floating so far from home, I was floating away, and I think it's because I'm feeling like I'm so far, like I'm just taking out with the tides. And I was a rabbit. I got so excited, it took my breath away. I called my mother. I said, Mom, I had this idea. I think that maybe we can make people dream of specific things. And, and she woke up and she told me about being a rabbit and she told me about feeling far from home. And my mother said, Adam, that was my idea. <laughs> she says, Adam, I, I whispered rabbits to you. And all of a sudden, this flood came back to me. The nightmare came back to me and the protection came back to me and the stories came back to me. And so when Ellen asked me to think of a story for tonight, of a dream and a nightmare that has stuck with me specifically, especially because I'm recently arrived in Sitka and I'm very far from home and I'm learning to love it here. And my mother is trying to whisper protection to me and I'm trying to whisper protection to loved ones very far away and thinking about the wisdom of my mama. I wanna leave you with a story about rabbits, thinking about dreams, thinking about distance, and the quiet stories that carry us far away and home again. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. And next, we have Brian McNitt. Brian has lived in Sitka for 30 years, although he and his wife, Brandy, just returned from living the last six years in Minnesota. Over the years, Brian spent time as a salmon biologist, commercial fisher, coffee shop mogul, and conservationist. Tonight is his first venture into storytelling. You might think I was going to tell a story about biking, because I bike a lot, um, but I'm not actually. I'm going to tell a dream story. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? I'm wedged into a small single engine airplane. It's creaking and groaning and making a lot of noise and it's slowly climbing and I'm terrified. And so I'm singing to myself to try to calm down. But before I go any further, when I was a young kid, I had a dream. I really wanted to fly. Not in a plane, but like a bird. Soaring in the quiet, high above the ground. And I started thinking, maybe I could fly in one of those, you know, the, um, the, the long-winged gliders that people used to be popular. And then later I learned about um, 
hang gliders and paragliders. Maybe I could do that. Maybe I could fly that way. And then I heard about squirrel suits. Maybe I could climb up on a, on a mountain and just jump off and fly down into the valley. And, and then I, I remembered the big problem with my dream was that I'm actually terrified of the thought of my feet leaving the ground. So it's really a big problem if you want to fly, not having your feet leave the ground. So I, when I started thinking about um, being able to uh, paraglide or to go on a hang glider, I just imagined myself, you know, strapping into that gear and then trying to jump off and then just being paralyzed. I had always been really comfortable climbing mountains and climbing trees. And over the years, I had several times when I would get to a place where I felt really exposed and my body would just freeze up. I would feel paralyzed and my hands and my feet felt like they were glued to the rocks or glued to the tree and I couldn't move, I couldn't breathe. Luckily, eventually, I would slow down a little bit and I would, I would relax and I could either continue on or sometimes, you know, go back down. And so those experiences over the years convinced me that I was never going to be able to live my dream of actually flying. But then three years ago, my nephew, Mitchell, who lives in Michigan, called me up one day and he said, Uncle Brian, would you skydive with me in a couple of months to help celebrate my 21st birthday? I talked to my mom and my dad and, and all my friends, and no one will do it with me. And without hesitation, I said, sure. As soon as I hung up, I said to myself, what the heck were you thinking? You're not going to be able to jump out of an airplane. That's just ridiculous. But the thing is, to Mitchell and my four other nephews who all live in Michigan, I'm their weird cool, crazy uncle who lives in exotic Alaska and does all kinds of cool adventures. So how could I say no to Mitchell? How could I tell him that I was too afraid to help support his adventure? So two months later, Mitchell and I are jammed into a tiny airplane with a pilot and two 20-something instructors our backs are strapped to the chest of the instructors, and we are in this little plane corkscrewing up to 13,000 feet. 13,000 feet! Ah, I can't even, th it just makes me sweat thinking about it now. So what was I thinking? There was just no way I'm going to be able to jump out of this airplane. So, um, so uh, we, we start climbing up, and um, we get to about... We get to about 5,000 feet, and um, I start thinking more about what, what can I do? What am I going to be able to do here? And then I started thinking, why are there so many songs about rainbows? And the thing is, when I get nervous and I get really scared, sometimes I lean on Kermit to try to help me calm down and try to breathe. And so he's been really helpful over the years. 
So we continue on up, and we have about 15 minutes left before, before it's jump time. And I am exactly the what I predicted. I'm, my, my heart is beating out of my chest. I'm breathing hard. I'm sweating profusely, and I'm just going crazy inside. 15 minutes until jump time. Rainbows are visions, but only illusions. And then it's about five minutes until we're going to jump. And I say to myself, okay, get a hold of yourself. We've, you, you can't back out now. How, could you, how, can you, how can you do that? You would crush all of Mitchell's dreams. And so I, I calmed down a little bit, and I got myself together, and I thought, all right, you might die. <laughs> but you might not. And either way, I really want to be able to experience jumping out of a plane at 13,000 feet. So the next thing I know, the door flies open. Mitchell and his instructor step to the door. They, they lean out, and they just disappear. I didn't even see him leave. <laughs> My instructor and I move over, to the, move over to the door. We step out onto the wing strut, and my hand is glued solidly to the handle of the door. And I let go. And the first couple seconds... I held my eyes shut really tight because I was terrified. I didn't even want to look down. I didn't want to see what was down there. And then I forced my eyes open, and it was so energizing, and I was thrilled, and I was, my body was vibrating. And um, it was just so amazing. And the blue sky and the white puffy clouds and the green farm fields below, everything was just vibrant and bright. It was so amazing. And... Um, we were about one minute into this just intense uh, experience, and then I was kind of pulled out of it by my instructor shouting in my ear to pull the ripcord, and I was so taken up by joy that I just didn't even hear him. He had to literally take my hand and move it over to the cord, and then I pulled it, and we felt this jerk up, kind of kind of solid but fairly gentle, and then he um, he said, uh, or um, it was kind of like a, a car, you know, like a, when you step on the brakes and you get jerked forward. It's kind of like that. And then we, we, um, we drifted down the last 5,000 feet um, very gently, and we landed back on the airstrip. And when I saw Mitchell, he had this huge grin on his face and two big eyes, and I'm pretty sure I looked exactly the same. We had both experienced the same amazing adventure. And right away, we both asked if we could go again. They couldn't do it that day, so we didn't go. But um, Mitchell and I, you know, we had a really special bond, and that day was even um, kind of reinforced that. And um, although I haven't actually stepped off the mountain on a hang glider, I'm sure that I'm much more likely and able to do it than I ever was. So thank you. Brian, thanks for jumping. If you hadn't, we wouldn't have had a story, but I love hearing about people's fears and the fact you shared them with us. So just to remind everybody, 
You are tuned in to a live event and broadcast of Sitka Tells Tales, Dream Cycles, Stories of Visions, Imagination, and Bicycles, celebrating and supporting the Salty Spoke in person at Harbor Mountain Brewery and airing live on KCAW. Time for our next teller, Katie Sill. Katie is an academic advisor at the UAS Sitka campus. You may recognize her voice from her recent appearance on KCAW's library show, where she discussed Chinese history and culture. Come on, Katie. Hi, everybody. When you work in education, it's really hard to separate the individual from the job. You may be wondering, Chinese history, Chinese culture, why was that part of her intro? Well, because I got my start in education working and teaching in China. I started as an oral English teacher at the University um, Hangzhou Dianzi Dashui and then at Zhejiang University. And then I eventually worked my way up by going down into the high school. And there I was able to teach the subjects that I was most passionate about, which included English literature and psychology, which kind of contradict each other sometimes. And so it was really difficult the semester that I was teaching AP English literature and AP psychology, and I had students in both classes simultaneously. It was particularly difficult when we got to the unit on dreams and Freud and dream analysis and the college board and the folks who designed the AP exam were saying, don't waste your time. That's not going to be part of the test. Psychology is moving away from psychoanalysis of dreams. Students may find it interesting, but you've got too much to cover, so skip it. But in my English literature class, analyzing dreams is a huge part of reading novels. You watch any TV show, any movie, you read a novel, the second a character has a dream, it's like a neon sign saying, hey now, pay attention to this. There's something important happening in this dream it's either going to be very obvious or it will be obvious in a couple chapters. And so I'm having these students in one class listen to me say, oh, no, we're not going to do dream analysis. we got to move on. And then two periods later say, let's analyze this dream that the character's having. And they're looking at me like, you're such a hypocrite. I'm just like, no, it's the curriculum. And... I also had a few students who really struggled in the literature class when it came to dream analysis. Um, for example, in my pre-AP English class, we read a book called Walk Two Moons. It's a great book, um, young adult literature, if anybody wants to look it up, I highly recommend it. Now in the story, one of the characters has a dream. She's on a journey through the story trying to reconnect with her mother. And in this dream, she sees her mother climbing a ladder into the sky. 
and her mother disappears into the clouds. And then she wakes up with this profound sense of sadness. Now to me, as a Western trained literature analyst, I will say, I'm like, ooh, that's symbolism. And also as the teacher who's read the book like five or six times before I taught it, I'm just like, ooh, that's some major foreshadowing. I got really excited. But for the students who are reading the book for the very first time, they're just like, so? She just like went into the sky? What does that mean? And I'm just like, no, think about it. Like, what's in the sky? What would people disappear into and you would feel sad? Uh, like trying to get them there and they're just high school kids and they're like, uh, they want you to feed them everything. And it's just like, <clears throat> mark it, highlight it, annotate, draw a star by it. You'll get it. Because at the end of the book, sorry for spoilers, it's revealed that, you probably guessed it, her mother has died, and she can't reconnect with her. And so I'm like, see, you guys, the dream that she has reveals the truth about her situation, and she's trying to come to terms with it. And if you analyze those dreams, you can learn about the person, or you can learn about yourself. And then I had a student say, but that's not scientific. You told us in psychology class that that's not valid. Well, yes, in psychology class, that would be true. But we're not in psychology class. We are in English literature class. There is a divide that I have to have within myself of the analyst and the creative. And so I had to invite my students to try to do the same. And it's all part of developing those critical thinking skills that seem to be taboo these days. But I encourage you all to consider the dreams that you have yourself. They may be reoccurring dreams. They may be a dream that make you wake up and say, well, that was weird. I wonder what that meant. Do I need to go see a shrink? Maybe. Wouldn't hurt. But... At the end of the day, I believe, and this is what I told my students, that any understanding that you derive from your dreams is something that you have to discover for yourself. It's not necessarily something that can be prescribed to you, but it could help in that moment of reflection early in the morning or right before you're laying down to go to bed, to wonder, what is my subconscious trying to tell me about who I am and what do I wanna do with that knowledge? Thank you. Thank you, Katie. That was a beautiful story. I also love that you told it with a cup of tea in hand for our listeners who can't see. Next, we have Luke Bruckert, who has tolerated me asking how to pronounce his name, not one, but two times. Luke is the chef and part owner of Campfire Kitchen here in Sitka. He grew up in Barrow, Alaska, 
and up until the age of 18, left and lived in cities for the last 22 years of his life until he finally moved back to Sitka in 2020. All right. All right, everyone. Uh, okay. Really nervous. Uh, okay, so this story uh, is about uh, this time in my life when I brought a devil back from Venice, Italy. Uh, so let me set the scene. <laughs> okay, so uh, it's the year 2000. Uh, half of my family's Italian. We're on a trip to Italy, and uh, we're on our uh, daily trip to Venice. And it is uh, summertime, and it's excruciatingly hot, very congested. There are tourists everywhere. Every language under the sun is being spoken, and all we want is a reprieve from all the activity. And we finally find this little back alley to uh, just take a moment of rest. And also we're on the search for something to bring back as a memento for our journey. And we find ourselves in this beautiful Venetian uh, carnival mask shop. And uh, the shop itself was very dimly lit. It was very dark and floor to ceiling, all the walls, the entire ceiling is layered uh, with these ornate, beautiful, handmade, hand-carved masks depicting aristocracy, uh, spirits, angels, devils, you name it. And I found one, the most beautiful one in the entire shop, and it was, uh, it was a mask depicting the devil. And uh, to describe it, uh, it had a huge hooked Machiavellian nose, and uh, it had these smirking eyes with huge, deep wrinkles that connected to its smirking mouth, and it had this evil, mischievous grin to it. And surrounding its face, it had these jester-like, snake-like uh, coils and curls and black and red and gold filigree. And at the end of all these curls were these little tiny bells, uh, which we'll come back to. And, uh, and I connected with this thing. It was so beautiful. And I told the shopkeeper, I'm taking that one right there. I want it. And, uh, you know, I was 18. I was armed with an Alaskan PFD, and I had, fi I had 500 bucks. Let's go. And, uh, and I remember, uh, so I, I told the shopkeeper I'm going to get it, and he pulls it down, and he pulled it down so quickly. He packaged it so hurriedly, he was almost shaking uh, his hands. And I remember my mother, even at the time, commenting after we left how strange it was that, that he had put this thing together so quickly. Uh, fast, fast forward, uh, I'm, now, I'm now in college, and uh, I'm living above my parents' garage in this uh, really cool little uh, apartment, and have one piece of cool wall decoration, this Venetian carnival mask. And, uh, and that's when all of this began, and uh, which is, um, this is a dream story. So to describe where I was at the time personally, uh, 18, fresh in a new place, lonely, depressed, no friends, and extremely vulnerable, key word there. And uh, so I began, to, uh, I began to dream at night, of course. But these were uh, nightmares, recurring nightmares of a devil-like figure that would visit me and it would stand at the edge of my bed, and to describe it, it had, it had ashen-like skin flaking off, rotten, zombie-like flesh, seething red eyes, 
large bat-like wings that were that were broken and as if they had been through a large fire and this thing was 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 standing before me pointing at me with this this lightly curled finger and i was i was in this state of absolute abstract constant terror and fear the feeling of night paralysis and i would wake up sweating uh uh and just beside myself and i would wake up in the middle of the night from these nightmares and i had the instinct to look over to this mask that i had on the wall and i would look at it and the bells on the end of these jester-like curls were shaking and making the slightest sound and this would go on for days and weeks and months, these recurring nightmares. And I would look to this thing and there was all this, this subtle motion happening. And it got so, it got so strange and so bad. I would, I would wake up from some of these things and I would see this, this mask directly above me, floating above me and I'd blink and it would be gone. And I'd look towards the wall where it's supposed to be. And these bells would, would just be slightly jingling and slightly shaking and I was, uh, constantly uh, underslept and in the state of just terror all the time. And it got so bad, uh, the, the moment of, I would say, climax, I woke up again from one of these, these devilish nightmares and this physical object, this mask, was laying on the pillow right beside me. And uh, I got up with a start. I ran into my parents' house. And, and instead of feeling afraid, I was actually in this state of uh, uh, strength. And I, I had had enough. This thing had pushed me too far. And I, I went up to it. And I, and I went back into these dreams I was having. And I made a declaration of, you will no longer have this, this power over me, this strength, this, this anything. And from that point on, it all stopped which is really strange. Uh, and if there was a moral to this, this story, it's that, that uh, the emotions that I would feel in my dreams and in my waking life were the same. And, and all of the fear that I experienced led me to my strength, uh, which was a very powerful transition. And um, if there's one fun note I would leave for this really weird story, I would say that um, when, you're, when you're in another place, another culture, looking for a relic of uh, your journey, just make sure that thing isn't possessed, yo! <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Um, now I'm gonna be super cautious when I bring back anything from anywhere. We're ready for the last teller of the evening, Kelly Swartz. And Kelly loves Jesus and adventure. Her mother told her at a young age, you go out into the world and bring me back interesting stories. She will try to keep it interesting tonight since mom may be listening in Ohio. This one is for all those far flung from families following their dreams and for her own three adopted girls and the dreams they have yet to endeavor. Let's hear it for Kelly. So this story and this journey starts with me strapping my silver Trek bicycle onto the back of a black Cadillac Brome, which is a huge boat of a car. You could probably fit your electric car in the trunk of that car. And I'm strapping down the, the front wheel so it doesn't keep spinning while I'm driving down the road. And I have AAA maps, paper maps, on the seat next to me. 
and I've got no cell phone, that's still years away. And I have no final destination, I have a direction, west. I'm heading west. And as I'm finishing up, tightening everything down, I've got everything I own packed in the car, out comes my stepfather, Charlie, out of the house. And he has this teeny, tiny little suitcase. It's old school, hard-sided, I think it was baby blue. And he has this teeny, tiny suitcase, and he says, it'll fit in my lap. I can put it in my lap, and whenever we get wherever you end up, whenever that is, I can just fly home to mom. <sighs> and he said, do you need me to go with you? I'm ready to go. And I said, no, Dad, I think I need to do this one on my own. But I never could have done it without you. I know that. And so everything tied down, ready to go. I hop into the car, and I flip the visor down, and I look into my eyes, and I wipe the tears away, and I just remember the absolute like joy and confidence and excitement that was on my face. And I looked out the window, and my dad looked the same way. And I started backing out the driveway, and in a few weeks, I would end up uh, in Arizona, and that would be my home for the next seven years. And I would be a flight attendant for most of the years that I lived in Arizona, which was an absolutely great job to have if you want to bring back interesting stories. And sometimes my mom and my dad, they would um, come meet me on my layovers, especially if I was in the Midwest or somewhere where they could get to uh, pretty quickly. And so they got to join me on adventures and make memories uh, still. But after seven years uh, in Arizona, I woke up one morning from sleep and I heard, go to Alaska. And I didn't see anybody. <laughs> and I said, I don't know anyone in Alaska. And I heard, you will. And that was it. I packed everything, I sold everything again. This time I fit it all in equally vintage Suburban. This time I was strapping a yellow Cannondale to the back because little did I realize Tempe, Arizona was the bike theft capital of the world at the time and my silver trek was no more. So once my Cannondale was uh, strapped on the back, uh, it was time to head north this time north to Alaska, and my husband likes to joke that I married the first man I met, and he's not far off. <laughs> but uh, after, after a month of riding 22 miles down the coastal trail with him just about every day on our cheap date, and walking uh, along the coastal trail in 2004 that had the most brilliant auroras all the time, that I ended up thinking was normal, uh, I knew um, that he was the man for me and that I was probably the girl for him. And if not, I was going to make sure he thought so anyway. <laughs> but uh, to seal the deal, I had this wonderful dream. And I woke up from the dream, and I immediately painted the vision that I had in the dream. And it looked like this. It looked like a man with his arms around a woman with their feet planted in the, in the dirt by a beautiful river with fireweed, and their arms were lifted up like branches of a tree, 
and it created beautiful foliage and beautiful canopy for shade and for everyone that would gather under it. And I thought, yes, that's a good dream. And 11 months later, we were married. And little did I know how much I needed that dream and how much I needed to paint that dream and have that vision, because marriage is hard. And we'll celebrate 18 years this year, and I'm so glad that I've had that, that painting on the wall, just like my dad's suitcase. It's just the vision and the thought of that has gotten me through a lot of hard things. And now I'm uh, so happy that our adventures are going to be in Sitka. And now I have a nice salmon-colored mountain bike that I've named Salmonberry. And she's so cool because the bike club, they helped me make really cool fenders out of political signs. So yeah, that's my awesome bike out there. So if you see me go by, just wave, come say hi, tell me a story because we're people that love bikes and we're people that are going places with bikes strapped to our cars and that makes us approachable and adventurous. And we're going places, and we're doing the solo work, and we're enjoying the ride. And I'm so thankful to be here with all of you to do that. Good night. Thanks, Kelly. You managed to get bicycles, dreams, and marriage into your story. I want to give a huge shout out to all our storytellers. Can we hear some clapping? Because we make them rehearse. We make them sweat. And they, they did it. And they helped us bring Sick of Tells Tales to life in person and on the radio. And thanks to Kara, Adam, Brian, Katie, Luke, and Zach, who's going to play some music for us. We want to thank Harbor Mountain Brewery. Campfire Pizza, for making food, beverage, and the space available to us. To the Sitka Daily Sentinel and the Soup, Sitka Soup, for helping us get the word out. To our timer and coach, Rachel Thompson. To our photographer, Misha. To Loshi Cielo, who's doing some technical work. And John Hirschenreiter and Becky Myers and Ann Alquist at Raven Radio for helping us make the stream and broadcast of Sitka Tales Tales happen, and Dave Emerit, who edits our shows and gets them ready for podcasts and use in the future. And we appreciate, again, everyone who listens and comes here. And it's so awesome to collaborate with Salty Spoke, and we want to do it again and encourage you to learn more about them. And Alyssa's going to say a few more things. Um, and if you want to learn more about the co-op, we have a website at saltyspoke.com, or you can come by on Saturdays, 11 to 2. We're right next to the Beak and Raven Radio. Uh, thank you so much for having us and for collaborating with us. And so now to finish up our evening is Zach Kirkpatrick. And maybe you should say something about because now I know you, but... Tell us something about yourself before you play. Just a sentence. Absolutely. I'm uh, born and raised in Juneau, fourth generation Alaskan, been in Sitka for eight years, and uh, just finishing up my debut album, which is exciting. Um, this one is called The Waves Crash Wildly On, which I'm in the studio with right now.
Well, I stood there as a greenhorn staring down the Bering Sea. While the captain said, stick with me, boys, I'll find us to a lead. And I reckon they have office jobs that I might do half well. But the angry sea just seemed to grow while I screw on the rail. Whoa! And the waves crashed while the on, while I looked up to the sky and said, forgive what I've done wrong. Whoa! And with hours yet till dawn, I just wrestled with dark thoughts that in the morning I'd be gone. Then the deck boss said, it's gone too far, it's time to get inside. Pulled ice from his gray whiskers as he stared with one good eye. Said sunny storm, my friends who passing out from salty graves. The ocean's given so much that at times she needs to take. Whoa! And the waves crashed while the on While I curled up in my bunk And saw my little girl at home Whoa As the ship creaked at its seams I thought this still prison It ain't worth the money it can bring Well the sea it proselytizes And converts unwitting men For a vagabond like me, I guess in it I found a friend. Cause although in that first trip I saw the grinning face of hell, the ocean gets into your bones and wraps you in a spell. Whoa! And the waves crash while the on. Now I smile to the sky and say, Lord, when you call me home, Whoa, may it be out on this sea And I pray you'll give me salty air in the eternity Thank you for listening to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's theme was Dream Cycles, Tales of Visions, Imagination, and Bicycles. This event was done in collaboration with the Salty Spoke Bicycle Co-op in Sitka and performed live March 21st, 2023 at Harbor Mountain Brewing. Thank you to the Alaska Humanities Forum and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting both Sitka Tells Tales and our grandparents' teachings, two storytelling programs and podcasts based in Sitka, Alaska.